You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and on this week's episode, Tom is talking with Dr. Beth Rabbit and Dr. Asaf Bitten about the state of global health, how it relates to schools, and a new initiative called the Parabola Project, which offers education leaders tools and strategies to minimize health risks while maximizing learning when reopening schools. Dr. Beth Rabbit is CEO of The Learning Accelerator, a national nonprofit that is working to make the potential possible and practical for every teacher and learner. Underpinning TLA's work is a drive to ensure each student receives an effective, equitable, and engaging education that supports them to reach their full and unique potential. Dr. Asaf Bitten is Executive Director of Ariadne Labs, a joint center for health systems innovation at Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Let's listen in as Tom talks with these insightful guests about what schools should be doing during the pandemic and what the research shows. Dr. Beth Rabbit uh, from the Learning Accelerator, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're joined today by your partner in the Parabola Project, Dr. Asaf Bitten. Um, welcome to the podcast. So happy to be here with you. Tell us about your lab. It sits between Brigham, Brigham and Whitman, Women's and um, the Harvard Chan School, is that right? Right, yeah. So Ariadne Labs is a health systems innovation center. What we try to do is take major issues and problems in healthcare, uh, in childbirth, primary care, surgery, end-of-life care, and build, test, and scale solutions that um, bridge the gap between what we know we should be doing in healthcare and what we actually do on a day-to-day basis. So um, we've been building, testing, and spreading um, solutions, everything from checklists in the operating room to new ways to visualize data for policymakers, um, both in the U.S. and in about 26 countries globally. Uh, We appreciate the mission of the lab and the practical ways that you're applying science to try to improve outcomes nationally. Um, uh, Dr. Beth Rabbit leads um, the Learning Accelerator. The, many of our listeners know that the TLA is a, a national nonprofit. Beth, have you been around for 10 years now? Almost eight. So we're coming up on it. Um, and, and TLA has really been a national leader in innovations in learning, uh, you've launched a number of high-impact projects that have really helped schools and school systems around uh, this country. Uh, I was interested to note uh, about seven or eight months ago, Beth, that you um, really stepped up very, very quickly when the pandemic uh, launched and helped organize um, a really terrific response. Maybe you could Describe that broadly and then the origin story of the Parabola Project. Yeah, absolutely. So the Learning Accelerator is a national nonprofit. We believe every child in this country should have access to a highly effective, engaging, and equitable education, an education that lets every kid uh, fulfill their full and unique potential. Our role is to connect educators, teachers, and leaders with the knowledge, tools, and networks they need to make that vision possible. When COVID-19 hit, um, like so many, we were kind of shocked at the pace and scale of school closures, as well as the myriad problems that educators were suddenly facing. There was a lot that we could learn from innovative school systems that had been exploring technology-enabled hybrid models. But 
one of the things that we noticed immediately was just the sheer disruption of support for education leaders, whether they be working in the classroom and now trying to figure out how to launch remote instruction or at the system level. So we launched uh, three different programs that all sit under a new initiative called Always Ready for Learning. The first is a national coaching network. We brought together 13 organizations from across the country to offer pro bono sustained coaching to any school leader or district leader in the country. We're working with almost 150 schools right now in a sustained way with many of the schools and school systems we're working with actually connecting with the same coaches or teams of coaches for five, six, seven, eight calls over the period of COVID to just figure out how to continue to respond to changing dynamics, as well as figure out what resources exist that they can tap into. The second thing we did was we launched uh, an, a new initiative called the Strategy Lab, made up of seven districts that are all trying to figure out how do we look past the immediate needs in COVID, though certainly they are addressing those, and really start thinking about what would it look like to build more resilient and equitable systems on the whole, and providing them with coaching and strategy support to do that, developing longer term plans that others can learn from. And then the last gnarly aspect of the problem we knew we had to uh, tackle was just that uh, education is faced with a challenge we actually don't know a ton about. Uh, it's actually, of course, schools have always been places where kids develop in their health. It has been a place where we have provided essential supports to kids um, to keep not the, just their minds, but their bodies whole. But in terms of figuring out coherent responses to the pandemic, um, figuring out safer ways to approach reopening, how to understand risk, we really lack um, the knowledge and expertise we need to, to do that. And so we thought there was an opportunity to get to actually work in much deeper partnership with the healthcare sector to do that. Through that work and with the support of the 1-8 Foundation, we were connected with Ariadne Labs and for the last seven months, eight months, have been working just side by side, trying to like begin to untangle the problem, but more importantly, put meaningful actionable guidance and tools into the hands of school leaders and system leaders so that they can make informed choices and begin to implement um, as they reopen, if they choose to reopen, in ways that minimize risk while actually still maximizing learning. And that's actually the origin of the Parabola Project as a name for the work. Um, in terms of focusing on the nerdy math of the of, uh, the uh, curves, but also as Asaf likes to point out, every parabola has a focal point. And for us, it's about delivering the best we possibly can for kids during a really challenging time. Well, uh, we are talking at a really challenging time, a time when uh, many schools around uh, the country were getting ready to open back up. Many of them had opened remote and and had scheduled uh, to, to go back in person uh, around now. And uh, when cases are spiking around the country. And so I guess I'll cut to the chase, Dr. Bitten. Should kids be in school right now? Most kids should probably be in school right now. Um, now, you know, because I'm a doctor and a public health guy, there's, there's always going to be, uh, it's complicated because it is complicated. Right. But I think that we're buttressed by the fact that there are a couple things going on. Number one, we know that there's a playbook of public health strategies that when followed well, and we've been working on that at the Prabble Project and, and with you know, many other state and local and federal officials, there's a good playbook, it's evidence-based, and when followed, it really reduces transmission. The preponderance of evidence across the US and the world is that schools are not a nidus for infection uh, in communities, especially when they follow the playbook. 
and that kids, for the most part, are at lower risk of transmission and severe infection than adults are. So um, because there's a playbook, because there's a risk differential, and because there is such a value in so many ways, not just health, but in socio-emotional learning and socialization, mental health, community perspectives to kids being in school, um, barring out of control transmission, which does exist in some communities across the US and barring not following what is now clear public health guidance on best practices. Um, you know, the, the majority of communities in my mind um, can have their schools stay open. Thank you for that. It, it does uh, seem uh, safer to have kids in school in a well-disciplined uh, school taking safety precautions than to have them having them out in the community um, what about staff members, uh, Dr. Bitten? Can, can we do enough to adequately uh, safeguard uh, staff members in a physical uh, school setting? You know, again, I think that the very short answer is yes, most of the time. There are staff members who have sets of chronic conditions and reasons that it might uh, be prohibitively risky for them to be in school. Um, but uh, I would say that most staff members, um, like other workers, like other essential workers, to be honest with you, um, can and will, if, the, if given masks, distancing, good ventilation practices, safely go about the business of doing their job in an effective manner. Um, and it's, you know, as a healthcare worker myself, you know, I don't, I don't preach what I don't follow. You know, I have to go to work in my clinic, in my hospital when called on, you know, it would be frankly against my self-interest to go into situations which were unsafe. And, you know, we've managed in the healthcare system to generally make it extremely safe to deal with a lot higher risk of COVID than most teachers are gonna face, the same in other essential parts of our workforce. So I think again, following a playbook, having protocols in place, understanding that there are gonna be some exceptions, but then you know, really moving along in a format that says we, we have to rise up to this moment as, as a workforce for our communities and our kids uh, and, 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 and do this important work is, is my perspective. Uh, Dr. Bitten, I was on uh, the phone this morning with an urban superintendent, um, predominantly African-American, uh, both teaching core and student body. Um, their concern was they, they believed that they could run a, a, a safe program at school. They were actually worried about ancillary transmission when kids uh, go home uh, to grandparents, extended family members. Uh, caregivers. Um, what, what about that extended circle uh, that are interacting with uh, both teachers and students in a school environment? The infectious disease dynamics would always say that more circles of interaction do confer some risk. The question is, uh, what kind of risk and what's the baseline community transmission level? So, you know, what we do know is that schools in which kids are wearing masks 100% of the time or as close to 100% of the time as possible, in which there's good, there's, there are at least some routes made toward better ventilation in which cohorting occurs, in which distancing is respected, 
they're uh, highly unlikely to be major sources of transmission to augment that transmission that's already occurring in a community. Now, there are right. going to be some communities that already have transmission rates that are, are, are at levels that make it not safe or sustainable for schools to happen in person temporarily. And everybody wants to know what is that magic level? And I don't have that answer. It has to do with the rise uh, of infections. It has to do with the, the, the underlying density uh, of communities and, and, and socioeconomic factors and other factors that, that make this disease exquisitely target inequities in our society um, and make those who can least afford to suffer, suffer more. And I am, as a provider who takes care of a population in an urban community, exquisitely sensitive and aware of that. So this cannot be a one size fit all, fits all sort of um, prescription here. Um, but again, we have to come back to also what the science is teaching us, which is that barring a few um, situations in which protocols have not been followed and barring, you know, massive overwhelming community level transmission, schools are not where the majority of community transmission is happening. That's happening mostly in people's houses, in people's um, uh, social environments, um, in which distancing and masks aren't respected, and in indoor settings like, like bars and restaurants in which people right. are taking their masks off and on. Yeah, and I think Tom, to piggyback there, when we're talking about the inequities of this situation, um, what we've learned working with um, the Ariadne teams, and it's been such an amazing experience to get to hear from them every week, is that there are meaningful practices we can put in place in schools, screening, distancing, washing our hands, wearing masks, um, that cohorting that dramatically improve our chances of decreasing transmission. And it's the choices that we have to be making both in school, but also in the compact outside of school as parents, as community members that really, that really matter here to keeping schools safe. Right. And if we don't do that, we have to also acknowledge that we are shutting down vital opportunities for kids for whom they don't have an option outside of school. I live here. Uh, in a large district in New England, they don't have devices for remote learning right now for kids below the grade, age, uh, grade seven. Kids who are not going to school are not making any meaningful connections with peers or teachers. And there are, if they are in at least the hybrid model, only getting two days a week of instruction. That's, that's the calculus we have to begin to consider when we um, think about risk and behaviors in school, but also importantly, behaviors out of school. Beth, let me ask you a tough political question. One of the things that I sensed from the system heads that I uh, was on the phone with this morning is the tension between their interest groups. Um, I think they, they understand the uh, advice from Dr. Bitten that uh, in, a, in a safely run school, uh, kids are safe, that they're safe being there and they're not likely to, to spread the disease. Um, but most superintendents are feeling pressure from their teachers uh, who are really concerned about going uh, back to school. And um, so there's this tension between parents that want kids in school and, and teacher groups that are concerned about going back to school. Do you have advice on how, how can 
uh, superintendents um, frame a community dialogue to help make the right decision for those different interest groups? Yeah, that's a terrific question. Um, and I will I will note that the interest within those groups, we've actually seen data can be strikingly different depending on folks' experiences in public education, um, their experience with racial injustice. Um, so I want to be careful not to make paint with too broad a brush, but I think the biggest lesson we have heard from schools and systems that have um, reopened well is that that creation of the dialogue the over, we heard that someone say obnoxious over communication is a critical step for any school leader or superintendent in this moment. We heard from one school system who was early reopening in South Africa over the summer. And they said, one of the instincts you have as a school leader is to protect your staff and your families from the sort of churn of information and the context for decision-making. And so there's a there's sort of something we all learn as education leaders, which is sort of like smooth out the bumps and like communicate only when necessary. And the opposite is true in this situation. Over-communication, explaining changes in policy clearly, explaining the why behind reasoning, creating opportunities for bi-directional communication, and really importantly with teachers, bringing them into planning early as partners in figuring out how to get the work done well has been incredibly critical. Um, and I think a lot of school districts, um, particularly for teachers and for families, it's been felt mostly as you're the last person to receive the information. Um, and it's really tough to, to trust it when you're in that position versus in schools and systems where um, there was a superintendent in Kudahi, Washington that we've profiled who said, I had Zoom meetings once a week for an hour and a half with every single staff member on, you know, in our district. I had Zoom meetings for parents. We reached out, we had conversation. Importantly, we said when we didn't know something yet. And those types of communications, I think, increase trust, increase partnership, as opposed to perhaps what we're all trained to do, which is to be more quiet and wait till we have the absolute answer. Uh, Dr. Bitten, um, Beth mentioned some of the things that are really essential for schools to do well. Um, we haven't talked about testing, uh, tracking, and tracing. Is that something that schools should be uh, paying attention to? Absolutely. Um, you know, it's actually one of the uh, one of the core principles of which there are nine in in the Parabola Project's work. You know, testing and tracing has to be part of. of the remit of a school and a super and, and a district's plan. Um, but there's, there's a nuance there. Um, people hear the word test and they, and some people say that means I've got to have the capability to test my students once a week. And that's actually not what we're saying. Um, what we're saying is really coordinating capacity and information sharing capacity, a capacity to understand that if, and when you get your first case of COVID-19 in your school community, that you have a plan, both as Beth articulated communication wise, but also um, uh, you've got the trust and the interlinked um, uh, protocols with your local health board, um, public health agency that says, okay, how do I initiate contact tracing? How do I get the people who were exposed to quarantine and give them a route to get accessible, affordable, 
timely testing. So, you know, a test is worthless if it's a week from the point of contact and takes another week to come back. And that's what was happening in the spring. Now, luckily in most parts of the country, that's not the barrier, although it's still not always easy enough to get a test, but it's important to get that timely actionable test and those results fed back so that schools and the communities can make good, um, good choices and then to track the individuals who might've been exposed so that they can make the right choices to keep them and their families safe. Uh, we totally appreciate the, the work that you've been doing in support of uh, school districts around the country, but Dr. Bitten, I, I'd have to say that on behalf of school system heads, I'm really disappointed at the public health response in America. It seems haphazard and patchwork, um, ranging from effective in some places to non-existent in others. When you look at the data, it looks like we've failed um, as a country in terms of our public health r response. Um, what what should we be doing better and, and do you see things getting better in the next few months in terms of coordinated public health response? It's a great question and it's time to sort of put everything on the table here. I mean, I've been doing public health globally and in the US for over 20 years. And um, I can tell you that uh, that this has been a public health failure. Um, let rule, rule numbers one and two of, of public health responses to pandemics or to challenges like this. Uh, rule number one is coordination and information sharing. Um, rule number two is to trust in science and expertise to augment the ability to coordinate a unified policy because the virus that we face doesn't give a darn about what our political divisions are. It's actually perfectly delighted to exploit whatever inadequacies in response may be caused by um, uh, political schisms in this country. And when, and when we as a society made the choice overtly or not to politicize what is a biological and epidemiological phenomenon, um, you can see the catastrophic results. And there is a difference between countries that have taken a coordinated, robust, whole of society, integrated response and seen economic and health um, uh, derivation and, and responses, it's interlinked, not oppositional, and have believed and trusted in science, scientists, physicians, and public health experts, they have, a, they have experienced a very different road than we have. And I'm very um, sorry that we've had to see the counter um, of that, the opposite of that in the U.S. and its impact on amongst many parts of our society on schools, because schools already have enough challenges and to put this one on them uh, has been so difficult. And so, yes, um, I am hopeful uh, in the next three to four to five months, we are going to see a very different set of coordinated, um, uh, scientifically based um, uh, responses that actually, and we can take hope in this, build off of a playbook. There is a public health playbook here. We know what we need to do. We have developed effective treatments. We're developing effective vaccines. We need to enlist everyone on board with these basic strategies, depoliticize them to the extent possible, and get our communities back into the business of doing business, going to school, and going about their daily life. 
We, we deeply appreciate the work that you've been doing this year uh, on that front. Uh, Beth, let's get super practical. Um, what, what are you telling schools about sports? Uh, what are we telling schools about sports? Well, uh, our opinion, based upon what we've learned from uh, the Ariadne team, as well as others in the sector, is that close contact is a bad thing. <laughs> Uh, shouting, yelling is a bad thing. Being outdoors are good things. Being masked is good things. Um, it's really tough. I have a five-year-old and a seven-year-old right now enrolled in public yeah. school. And it, it is a question for me about, you know, like, what what do we do about their physical health? Because it's certainly not hanging out while my husband and I are working, you know, with screen time. And it's painful as a parent to say no to things that feel like the norm. But the reality is that any extracurricular <laughs> that is not necessary that may increase risks of transmission um, in, is, not, is not helpful, particularly when communities are experiencing already increases in transmission. Now, every community and every parent has to make their decision, um, but I think schools should definitely do their best to encourage those behaviors that we know are safest. Um, and, you know, there are opportunities here for us to innovate as a sector and to think about how do we engage students in different ways that um, that allow them to uh, engage with one another, to develop, to create, to move their bodies, um, but in safer ways. I think we've seen tons of amazing educators doing that. Uh, Coral over Zoom. Uh, the sudden uptick of archery as a sport in schools. I mean, we're seeing this and I think it's possible. And I think we have to be um, patient, understanding and creative uh, to the extent possible. And there are a lot of opportunities for creation, creativity right now. Those are good um, guidelines for right now. I appreciate that. Uh, Beth, um, if, if a school or a district doesn't really have room to bring all their kids back in a safe and distanced way is, is a hybrid schedule where kids are at school two or three days a week still the, the best approach? What, what are you seeing there? So I think that there is a question around um, which schedules are best for which students under which um, paradigms, right? So the most of the schools that we see going back do not have physical capacity nor staffing capacity to serve all students in a socially distanced way at once. We are seeing some schools get really creative with the use of space and staffing to figure that out. But for most schools, it is a hybrid schedule. Um, one of the things we like to say is hybrid is a context, not a learning model. And so there have to be meaningful differences between how kids are working remotely and what they're doing in school. And we know this from actually the learning science around online learning and in-person learning. They're not interchangeable. We can't just have kids zooming in. Um, but, uh, but importantly, I'd also note that this depends developmentally on where kids are and how well they can be self-directed in their learning, what supports they know need. We know our youngest learners actually need a lot of synchronous support for uh, learning phonics, for exploring together, for using their bodies versus high school students. We could be thinking a little bit more creatively about hybrid learning models. I would argue having them come in for the most important work, such as advising, wet labs, uh, maker spaces, and actually thinking more creatively about like how to use their time in places outside of school. We unfortunately haven't seen a ton of that happening, but I think, um, but I think that's something that school districts could, should consider exploring for kids in upper grades. Dr. Bitten, um, we're at a difficult time in a number of respects, um, not just a health crisis, but in many respects, a political a crisis, a crisis of, um, of polarization where we have 
very different views of uh, reality. I, I wonder if, from a public health standpoint, if if you have advice for local um, health officials and school officials on how they can build a sense of trust about the path forward in terms of uh, precautions, uh, protocols, uh, va vaccination strategies. How, how can we at a local level get people on the same page and acting uh, in, a, in a collective action in ways that are really productive? It, I mean, all that you say is true. This is, this is a moment in which the temperature is so high across the nation. And what I suggest um, particular for local leaders is to, um, first of all, focus on that trust dividend and that trust quotient. Trust is where we're trying, what we are trying to build in order to together move toward any of our other shared goals. We cannot do it without trust. And so first is that realization that they're in the trust game and trust building game. And second, in order to build trust, trust requires deep empathy. It, require, it requires deep um, awareness and, um, and a non-judgmental uh, take on, on how we approach problems that incite um, high passions on all sides of the political spectrum. If you want to take an issue like vaccines, I don't, I don't talk about vaccines and, and um, people who um, have a lack of trust in vaccines as anti-vaxxers. I don't believe that labels that pejoratively segment people into one group or the other are useful in our common effort. And that's what is really important on the third point, that the empathic leadership that's required to delabel and to decrease the temperature then requires us to basically restate, and Beth said this earlier, that we are in a social compact together. And right now, we need to triage our way through this mess, this morass, to recreate a new social compact in which the opposing factions are so angry at each other, in which every seemingly reasonable community effort gets politicized. We need to have a moment in which we say we respect, we deeply understand the concerns on all sides. And in order for us to get across this narrow bridge, we have to agree on a couple of common basic facts. The fact that we're all in this together, the virus exploits our differences and will pick us apart if we do not take it seriously enough. And that, that we can respect each other's differences, but disagree and then commit. Disagreeing and then commit to working together, whether it's in schools, it's on public health issues, or it's on the other critical issues that we face. Not so that we all of a sudden have a magical playland in which everyone thinks similarly about politics and everything else, but because we are facing our stiffest challenge as a nation since perhaps World War II. It is that bad. And if you don't believe it, just talk to anybody in healthcare, and they will tell you right now is feeling even worse than the spring. And the spring was very bad. And the only way out of this is to work together, to disagree and then commit, to respect each other, to understand that there are going to be differences, but that everyone's going to have to give something in the common effort for the common good in order for us to emerge relatively less scathed on the other side. Beth, in, in uh, speaking of uh, things getting bad, it, it's looking to me like we're in the middle of an education disaster. Um, there's millions of kids that are uh, disconnected, tens of millions of kids that are are now um, 
six or 12 um, months behind what we'd consider normal progress. I, I guess how, um, how should school and system leaders think about um, these, these uh, gaps that appear to be accelerating, particularly for our most vulnerable kids? What, what kinds of advice are you giving or formulating on that front? You paint such an optimistic picture, Tom. I, I mean, we all feel it. We're, this is a disaster. Um, and I think that I have, first off, a huge amount of empathy and a huge amount of just um, humility around the challenges our education leaders are facing and teachers are facing and how hard this work is. Um, so I don't want to offer any of what I'll say next as, as easy. Um, the first is, we one, we've got to look at our inequities first. The fact that we are nine months into this and we still have not provided every student in this country with access to learning, at least right. at a remote level, is a travesty. And I, that's something that I hope that we can act on, continue to act on together. Um, and I'm hoping um, folks in positions of power can really look at and help resolve. The, um, the second thing is we have to focus on connection, um, both literal, <laughs> like the internet connection, but also the metaphorical disconnection that students are experiencing between each other, between their teachers and their disconnection from the feeling of why does this even matter? It's a tough year to be a senior in high school pushing through uh, with right. so much uncertainty. So we've got to reconnect in the many ways in, and in every way possible. And part of that will require freeing teachers and leaders and students um, from working in kind of calcified ways and, and exploiting the many other ways that we can offer connection through technology, but also, frankly, through having advisory periods outside at school, for example, even if we're not offering full day options. Um, and then the last thing is, like, we just got to do the next right thing. As, uh, as educators, it's just about saying, okay, what is the one step forward that we can take in this moment? How do we come together around it? You know, I really, um, I really love Asaf's notion around commitment. What is what we are going to commit to and let's just get it done. And from there, we will figure it out next because our children and our communities demand nothing less than us continuing to committing to forward action, particularly as it relates to closing equity, but also in keeping our students engaged. Now, would I love to be able to say, and yes, let's figure out how to accelerate six months of learning loss of, you know, in three months, uh, that's going to take a lot of innovation, a lot of commitment, and frankly, a commitment to finding resources in places we're not used to. Uh, at the Prabola Project, we've talked a lot about what should the role of summer schooling be next year, particularly given the dynamics we know about the virus. Um, so I think we're just going to have to think creatively, but we cannot let this moment um, petrify us to the point where we don't take action for kids and for families. It's Great advice. And we know with a name like The Learning Accelerator that you and your team are going to be at the middle of helping uh, America sort of create a new path forward. Uh, Dr. Benton, maybe we can close with some uh, holiday advice. Uh, we're moving into the holiday season. Lots of people had plans to celebrate with uh, friends and family. Uh, what, uh, what should we keep in mind in the coming months? We're, we're almost every state in the union is in the thick of things right now. And, um, you know, when we're in, in such a tough time in, across our communities, we need to all do our part and doing our part means making ourselves, um, a little less comfortable, a little, 
uh, uh, foregoing some things that we usually like to do. So, you know, in-person gatherings for, for the holidays are just not a good idea. You know, there's just not an easy or safe way to do them. Many parts of our country are swathed in cold right now. If you're lucky enough to not be in the cold, then be outside widely distanced and don't share utensils. Uh, but if you're in the cold, then this might be the year for, for the Zoom giving or the, um, you know, Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa on Zoom. Um, and, and, and that feels rotten. I mean, that stinks. And, and I get that. Um, but I also want people to know, and this is, you know, for your listeners uh, in the education space, you know, from us in healthcare, we're barely hanging on. We are triaging things that we shouldn't, frankly, be triaging. We are not doing... Um, you know, uh, procedures and, and doing all the things that we should be doing because our hospitals are now filled with COVID. And if people really want to contribute, if they believe that healthcare uh, folks are important and they want to help the cause, then they can do what they can to help the cause by making themselves a little less convenient, happy, and satisfied by just taking, taking one for the team this year and not having those in-person gatherings that'll just keep filling up our hospitals later next month. Yeah, Dr. Asaf Bitten uh, is the director of the Ariandi Center. Um, we, we really appreciate your work this year in the middle of a crisis. You've really benefited America's uh, school kids and families. So thanks for the practical, collaborative, uh, tireless work that you and your team have been putting forward um, Beth, where can people learn more about the Parabola Project and your work? Yeah, the easiest place to go is parabolaproject.org. And that's all one word with the org on the end. And um, that will also send you over to some of the other resources that are available at alwaysreadyforlearning.org, which is where you can find a lot of different resources um, on remote learning, places and um, uh, people to turn to for free support and uh, as well as a whole bunch of just general resources on how to move forward. So thank you so much for the opportunity to share more about the work. Beth, uh, thanks for your contribution this year. You guys mobilized in a hurry with uh, great partners um, like Ariande, um, and you've just been doing terrific work uh, on behalf of schools and school districts, and lots of, other, uh, lots of us appreciate it. So thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for all you're doing too, Tom. A big thanks to Beth and Asaf for joining us this week. We appreciate their essential work and leadership in helping us navigate the unknown. That's it for today, listeners. Thanks for tuning in, and be sure to check out all the insightful resources at alwaysreadyforlearning.org. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica, signing off. Jessica, signing off.